Chapter Twenty Eight of *The Key to the Riddle: A Story of Huguenot Days* by Margaret S. Comrie. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Twenty Eight, led forth by the right way. The news of the sudden death, from apoplexy as was supposed, of Alphonse Le Bitetu was carried to Castelbrianza by the courier who brought from France a summons to Captain Gaston de Rohan to set out for Versailles to receive from His Majesty in person a colonel's commission and a high order of merit in recognition of the signal services rendered by the said captain during the campaign of 1688. The great enemy of the house of de Rohan dead, Gaston reinstated in his sovereign's favor, the tidings were almost stunning in their effect. Indeed it was only by slow degrees that those most immediately concerned grasped the situation, and realized the momentous change in their lives which, by the good hand of their God upon them, had been so unexpectedly, so startlingly brought about. In the afternoon of the day on which the royal messenger arrived at the chateau, a grave conference was held there between Henri Arnoux, Pastor Montu, Léon, and Gaston de Rohan. A communication of a serious nature, affecting as it did the prospects of the French reformed in the valleys, had reached Arnoux some days previously from Turin, and he, along with François Montu, had ridden over to Castelbrianza to talk the matter over with their friends at the chateau. The information the Vaudois leader had received was to the effect that Duke Amadeus, yielding to the pressure of political considerations, was contemplating the signing of a treaty which would necessitate his issuing an order of banishment to all French refugees in the Piedmontese valleys. This edict of expulsion, if carried into effect, which there was only too good reason to suppose it would be, would expel at least seven pastors, originally natives of Pragala and Dauphine, two of whom were Henri Arnoux and his colleague François Montu. The order of banishment would affect no fewer than three thousand Frenchmen now residing in the valleys, and the future of this vast congregation of homeless fellow-countrymen was an anxious question to their pastors. But already Arnoux's active brain was revolving plans for the well-being of his much-tried people. The scheme which most commended itself to him was that he, as representative from his countrymen, should apply to one of the Protestant princes of Germany, say the good Duke of Württemberg, for permission to establish a vaudois colony in his dominions. "'I am of opinion,' said Arnoux, "'that the Duke will at once accede to our petition.' but we need not look for it that to a penniless band of foreign immigrants the German prince will allot a land of Goshen. Without capital, strange to the ways and language of the country, our road to independence and prosperity must necessarily be toilsome and uphill. Arnoux's colleague glanced at him anxiously. Almost for the first time in his experience, François Montu could detect in the clarion voice of the hero of Salabertrand and the Balsilla a note of despondency. Here Gaston, who had been gazing abstractedly from the window, came forward. I believe, Monsieur General, that I am now in a position to relieve you in some measure from the burden of this new responsibility. Only yesternight I heard from Signor Bocelli, my agent now in Paris, of the sale at an almost fabulously high price of an estate of mine in Languedoc. It gives me sincere pleasure to inform you that, in accordance with a long-cherished desire of mine, I shall as speedily as may be hand over to you in a deed of gift the purchase money in full, that with it you may buy land in the German Protestant states for your fellow exiles. Furthermore, Monsieur Pastor, be it known unto you that it is my intention humbly to offer the services of Gaston de Rohan as a commissioner of the new colony in Württemberg. Happily, nay, providentially for me, this weak arm will enable me to procure my discharge from the army without incurring the king's displeasure. And now it was the turn of the two pastors to find that day's good news bewildering. Even Henri Arnoux remained silent from sheer surprise. But when de Rohan went on to unfold in detail the scheme he had formed in the solitude of his cell at Pinerolo, Arnoux's amazement changed to thankful gratitude. Now praise be to our God, he exclaimed. Praise him, I, cert, and not only for his wonderful works to the children of my people, but for his long-suffering patience toward Henri Arnoux, him of little faith. Shame on me for my faithless fears. 
My brothers, let us give thanks to our faithful God. Standing with bowed head, the others reverently following his example, Arnu poured out from his full heart a burst of thanks to him who had thus wondrously provided for his people, so unexpectedly threatened again with tribulation. At the conclusion of the prayer, Monsieur Montu laid his hand on Gaston's shoulder, and put the very question which had been asked by Azerel but a few weeks before. "'My dear fellow, what of Madame your mother?' "'I have spoken with her, Monsieur Pastor. She is willing, nay glad, to go forth with the Lord's exiled people to the land chosen for their inheritance.' Whereupon there followed a long and animated debate over the Württemberg scheme, whose proportions grew larger and its prospects brighter the closer it was looked at. So engrossing was the subject that it was some time before even Monsieur Montu was struck by something unusual in Léon's look and manner, and by the fact that, interested though he was in the Vaudois colony, the interest appeared to be for the sake of others rather than his own. "'My son, surely you go with us?' demanded his father, with an abruptness caused by sudden anxiety. "'I think not, father.' The quiet but decided announcement was received with exclamations of consternation from the others, but Léon went on unmoved. In my time of need, Monsieur and Madame Broussel were as father and mother to me, a heretic stranger. Now that they are feeble and lonely, it would be ill done in me, methinks, to forsake them. Unable to speak, Pastor Montu grasped his son's hand and wrung it hard. It may not be for long that they will have need of me, and whenever my work here is done, and if it so please God to permit me, I shall come and assist you, my father, in the shepherding of the flock over which God has been pleased to place you, and thus the ambition of my life will be attained." "'My Léon, you have made my heart to rejoice,' said the pastor in a choked voice. "'And if Monsieur and Madame Broussel's gain be our loss, your mother's and mine, what shall we say but that the good will of the Lord be done?' Yesternight I said somewhat to the farmer and Madame Justine about my remaining with them, and methinks as the time draws near when—when you, my friends, must needs depart, I shall have somewhat wherewith to comfort myself in the remembrance of the tearful joy of the old folks at Malino. Moreover, I shall have the comradeship of our faithful Jules— who is decreed to remain on the farm so long as I am pleased to do the like. Thus God has thought for me, my father." The young fellow spoke bravely, despite the suspicious huskiness in his voice. It was now Gaston's turn to grasp his hand. "'Léon, you noble fellow, this is altogether like you, and only what we might have looked for. But you need not think you will be forsaken, mon ami. Let us all take cheer. There will be many journeyings between Piedmont and Württemberg. I must needs come often to see after affairs at Brianza and I make no doubt there will be those from the homes at Württemberg who will petition in turn for the pleasure of accompanying me. And hearken, Brother Léon, in the Schlossbrianza, in the new country, there will be a guest-chamber set apart and sacred as our Léon's room." The two young men again grasped hands. Léon was much moved, but not altogether sorrowfully. "'It is well,' he said, looking from one to the other with honest affection. "'It is well.' Arnu, who had been silently nodding his approval of the foregoing conversation, now claimed Gaston's attention for a moment. "'I would gladly stand here until midnight, monsieur, discussing topics that touch us all so nearly, but my presence is needed at Torre Pelice. Ere I depart, monsieur de Rohan, I would fain attempt to thank you in the name of my people for your proposed generosity. But as I told you once before, I am a man of deeds rather than words. Would that I could express in action my sense of gratitude to you.' De Rohan smiled. "'It may be that I shall take you at your word, monsieur Arnoux. There is a favour I shall have to ask you to do for me, and that speedily, perchance.' and he drew the pastor aside into a curtained recess, where they held a brief but apparently satisfactory colloquy together. Shortly afterwards the two pastors and Léon left the chateau together, and Gaston betook himself to the boudoir in search of his mother. He found her sitting alone by the fire, her hands clasped in her lap, her whole attitude that of restfulness. "'Still dreaming of Schloss Brianza, Madre Mia?' he demanded, lightly touching her forehead with his lips. She turned her face up to him and smiled. 
Come on, madame, but I vow you grow younger and handsomer each day, he gaily declared, looking at her with fond pride. Madame de Rohan shook her head at his wild words, little dreaming how near the truth they were. For she had entered upon a new life, this lonely, heavily laden woman, a life abounding in the joy and peace of believing in her Saviour, and now an expression, brighter than in the happy days of her youth, had given her a beauty above that of earth. Pardon and consolation for the past, rest in the present, happiness assured for the future, were these blessings not enough to account for the change in her that was so evident to all? Sitting down beside her, de Rohan unfolded Signor Bocelli's letter. There was a paragraph in it which he had reserved for his mother's eyes alone, and he watched her now while she read it. "'Paris calls you a lucky dog, mon ami,' so ran the letter, "'for the king, to crown his other marks of favour, has announced his gracious intention to bestow upon you the hand of la belle Mademoiselle de Mondovi, thereby making you the envy of every gallant in the court. Echo, it is well that your affections are yet untangled, for I make no doubt you are well aware that in these delicate affairs d'amour for a courtier to say nay to Louis le Grand's yea would mean disaster, if not ruin.' With an exclamation of consternation, Madame Eloise laid down the letter. "'Therein Signor Bocelli speaks but the truth,' she said in a troubled voice. "'I know it,' he quietly replied. There was a moment or two of silence. "'One way there is out of the difficulty,' she went on hesitatingly. "'I know that also, my mother.' Another pause. "'When must you start for Paris, Gaston?' De Rohan considered. "'This is Tuesday.' The day after tomorrow, at latest, if I would reach Versailles on the date fixed by His Majesty. So saying, he sprang to his feet and walked quickly to the door, his own words seeming to have suddenly awakened him to a realization of the need there was of haste. Where is she? In the library, seeking for a book she knew I was in quest of. Gaston. Her tone was wistful, and he turned at once. Gaston, you will be very tender with her. Methinks if ever there was a time in her life when she must needs miss her mother, that time is now. He nodded and was gone. Madame de Rohan, her hands in her lap, but the fingers more tightly interlaced than before, sat motionless in the firelight. She had not long to wait. Within half an hour he came, but this time he was not alone. Azarel, flushed and shy, her lips unsteady, walked by his side, her hand held in his tender clasp. He led her up to his mother. "'Madre mia, it is well,' he said softly. "'When I go to Versailles, Azarel, the grand-niece of the king's old friend the Baron de Montelemar, will accompany me as my wedded wife.' and so it pleased God. Madame held out her arms, and the girl sprang towards her. "'Ah, how good to me is our father God,' she murmured, hiding her face, for now the tears were coming. "'How kind, for have not I you, dear Madame, to mother me when most I have need?' It was noon on Thursday, Gaston de Rohan and Azarel Montu's wedding day. The Castelbrianza Chapel, a long-disused building, had been hastily fitted up for the occasion. Branches of autumn-tinted leaves hid the stained walls, garlands of evergreens were twined round the time-worn pillars, wreaths of flowers festooned the place with a luxuriance that would have bespoken lavish waste anywhere but in the sunny south. A richly embroidered curtain had been drawn across the chancel, and in front of the curtain was a small table on which Léon had placed a Bible, the same precious book which had for so long been hidden in the haunted cave in the Boisware. Grouped about the door of the building were a goodly number of servants and villagers. If orthodoxy forbade them to venture further, interest and affection would not allow them to remain at a greater distance. Within the chapel were to be found the bolder spirits, led by Blaise and Jacqueline, whose religious scruples were allayed by the sage reflection that the venerable Prior Baronius and gentle Father Matthew had ever a kind word to say for the Vaudois, and by the further comforting consolation that, where their madame could go, surely her dependents were safe to follow. In gown and bands, his hand resting on the open Bible, waited Pastor Henri Arnoux, 
and with him stood Gaston de Rohan, looking very handsome in his captain's uniform. Beside his brother stood the groomsman, a tiny figure in myrtle green slashed with silver. Oppressed with a sense of his responsibilities as a functionary of importance in this mysterious religious ceremony, Christophe had a vague idea that his office required of him to keep his eyes with unwavering fixity upon the bridegroom, at least until the bride arrived to relieve him of that duty. But it was an inexpressible relief to him to know that not only was Léon close at hand ready to support him if occasion required, but that his mother also was nearby. Madame de Rohan, erect and stately, her whole demeanor expressive of a calm gladness, looked, as Jacqueline proudly whispered to her underlings, a very queen in her robe of black velvet. Good Monsieur Broussel and his Justine, attired in their simple best, glanced furtively and with something akin to awe towards the regal figure that in that very gown no doubt had once graced the court of Le Grand Monarch at Versailles. In the background, among the shadows of the pillars, loomed the giant form of Jules Bersou, who stood twirling his moustache with the fierce energy that with him always betokened the working of strong excitement. But now a little movement about the entrance to the chapel drew the attention of all to the door by which the bride was entering, leaning on her father's arm. Azrael's dress was of fine white lawn, enriched at neck and sleeves by flutings of exquisite lace, the same which had adorned the robe worn by Eloise de Castellan on her wedding morn long years ago. Jacqueline and the two maids, who had sat up nearly all the night to finish their beloved mademoiselle's gown, exchanged glances of supreme satisfaction as they surveyed the effect of their handiwork. Fair, sweet, graceful, with a modest shyness that but added to her charm, the girl advanced up the chapel aisle and took her place by Gaston's side. She was a trifle pale, and her eyes, after one swift upward glance into her bridegroom's face, were cast down, but he at least had caught the look of love and joy which had been flashed to him, and he mutely answered it by the firm pressure of the hand he took in his. "'Ah, oh, Madame Jacqueline, but is she not in very truth la belle de valleys?' murmured the grave-faced Vaudois maiden, who, to her intense delight, had been chosen to accompany the young bride to France in the capacity of lady's maid. Mariette, who had known and loved Mademoiselle Azerol in the old Ponifra days, already regarded her mistress with a proud sense of proprietorship. The simple but impressive ceremony over, the party adjourned to the chateau, where refreshments on a liberal scale had been provided, and thither throughout the afternoon visitors flocked to pay their greetings to the newly wedded pair. Humble friends, whose hearts had been won by many acts of kindness shown them in their hour of need by Mademoiselle Montu, eagerly elbowed their way among others of higher station, who had long since found out that the heretic Barbette possessed a subtle charm of bright unselfishness that was wondrously fascinating. By twos and threes they came, one and all expressing personal regret and bidding farewell to Madame Gaston de Rohan. For it was now known that after visiting the great court at Versailles, Captain de Rohan would take his bride to her mother in Württemberg, where Madame Eloise and her son Christophe were to join them in the spring. It was five o'clock in the afternoon. The guests, all save Monsieur Broussel, his wife, and Pastor Arnoux, had gone. The traveller's psalm had been sung, and Azerel, having exchanged her white dress for a riding skirt, was returning from the servants' hall, where she had been bidding affectionate adieu to her faithful friends of the household, when in the dim light of the corridor she felt her arm grasped by a tiny hand. "'Azerel, I saw Jules leading up and down your beautiful new horse in the court, and—and—a great lump has suddenly grown up in the middle of my throat. When will it go away?' In the circumstances, Azerel dared not offer a kiss, so she made answer cheerily. It will go away with me, Monsieur de Beauregard de Rohan. He heaved a sigh of relief, but waited for proof of her assurance. When Gaston and I are both gone, then you will be able to smile again. You will find out that Madame your mother's heart cannot after all become oversad, and that because she remembers she has still a son left to comfort her, our little man Christophe, the boy with a grown man's heart. I see, he returned satisfied. 
Voila, if we must needs kiss one another, Sister Azrael, it had best be now, while the lump is choking me at any rate, and there is no one by. But it was in saying farewell to Leon that Azrael's heartstrings felt strained almost to breaking. The brother and sister had drawn aside within the shadow of a window recess, and with her arms about his neck she broke down, and the first tears she had shed that day fell in a sudden shower. Leon, Leon, I know not how to leave thee. Throughout these long years of our exile God gave us to each other, and I had never once thought that there would come a day when I would be parted from thee. What shall I do? He passed his hand tenderly over the bowed head. The months will soon pass, and the spring will be here, Sherry. And then, as thou knowest, I am coming to Württemberg with the rest, to see our precious mother and little Stella, and all the dear home party at the Schloss Brianza. God knows, he went on, but more slowly, warned by a certain unsteadiness in his voice. God knows how I shall miss thee, my Azarol, my help and comfort. At the first I confess I was like to be rebellious, and was fain to cry out why, for to my poor vision it seemed a mystery how it could be the best way, at least for me, that you and I, little sister, should be sundered. Soon, however, there sounded in my ears the words, He led them forth by the right way. And cert, I told myself, there could be for me, Léon Montu, no other way but his. Next, I minded me of these bygone years, and the pains our Father God has taken to teach us that there is no cause for us to fret over the riddle, when we know it is his hand that holds the key. Azarel lifted up her head, smiling through her tears. And methinks that even this perverse Azarel has learnt that, when we know it is divine love that has turned the key, it would ill become the hand of faith to try and force the lock. End of chapter 28 End of The Key to the Riddle, A Story of Huguenot Days by Margaret S. Comrie